0: You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. We are in the middle of a whistle-stop tour, I guess you could call it, of the Book of Acts, a book which starts with... Jesus um, uh, departing and ascending to God and the writer of Acts Luke uh, saying that his first book had been about what Jesus had begun to do and teach with the implication that the rest of this book of Acts and in fact possibly the rest of time since then has been about what Jesus has continued to do and to teach um, throughout uh, the world and We've been looking at the explosive way that the church grew in some of its earliest years. Um, We looked first at the the, the eight chapters at the start of the book of Acts and we talked about the mix of internal and external pressures on the very early Christian community and then the remarkable growth that followed in the number but also in the maturity and the love and the togetherness uh, of the early Christians. And then we looked at Acts 11 at the church in Antioch, where the believers were first called Christians, and the Apostle Paul really, I guess, started his life's work of going from church to church, preaching and strengthening the people of God. And so today we're going to whiz forward again. It is very much a whistle-stop tour to, to Acts chapter 17, and perhaps one of the most, yeah, probably one of the most famous and the most commented on sections of this book, the speech that Paul makes. To the citizens and to the philosophers of the city of Athens. It's a great story to read if you, you you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you wouldn't give yourself that label, you wouldn't identify as a Christian. It paints a picture of a city that's full of ideas, that's got opinions and religions and cultures, and then, then it throws into the middle of that picture probably the, the most bold, effective, and influential human who has ever preached the gospel of Jesus and the message of Christianity. And so if you're exploring faith, if you're, if you're wondering what religion and church and Jesus might all mean, it, this passage opens up many doors for fruitful thinking, for conversation, And if today does start some trains of thoughts for you, if today does kick off something within you, I'd I'd love to explore that with you, either at the end today or in another uh, setting. I I fully acknowledge it's it's a bold step, isn't it, to come up to the person who's been preaching on a Sunday and ask questions and enter dialogue. But but rest assured... I'm pretty nice. Um, I I won't force my faith down your throat. I'd I'd love to listen. I'd love to engage with you where you're at. There are are also tons of others in church, men and women and young and old, who would love to do the same. I can guarantee they won't force their faith down your throat either. So let me encourage you, if if it's some clarity or some perspectives on today's text or, or on faith or on God, if you're looking for that, Church ain't a bad place to start, and hopefully, I hope we're not a bad community to do that in. And, and before we dive into the text, I want to ask you some open questions, which I'm not going to answer. Um, I, I want you to ponder on them briefly as we start and, and mull over them. And as we follow the story through in Acts chapter 17, you might start to see how they might have some relevance to the story that we are being told the questions are very simple they're all about you (laughs) that there'll be no marking of your homework and i'm not going to ask you to share your answers with the person beside you so never fear um but you, you in that sense then you're free to be as honest as you allow yourself to be so here are three questions for us to ponder on did anyone make you Does anyone own you? And does anyone know you? In the deepest of senses, does anyone know you? So, having either piqued your interest or totally bamboozled you with those questions, let's turn to the first section from Acts chapter 17, um, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens. Stop there a sec. Athens, well Athens was a university town which had formerly been at the heart of an empire and was still at the time of this story a vibrant museum city even though other surrounding cities had overtaken it in size and prominence. So minus a National Railway Museum, it was basically the York of its day. Paul was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. With Athens' history at the centre of Greek religious thought for centuries, the the town, it would have been dotted here and about. You'd have kept on bumping in wherever you go through its streets to, to shrines and pillars on which sat statues of gods like Zeus or Hermes, If you've ever encountered or if you've ever learnt about ancient Greek religion or can remember primary school, you recall that there are a lot of gods in the Greek pantheon, and they always seem to be endlessly at war with one another and competing for the attention and the obedience of humans. And our central character, the Apostle Paul, well, he's deeply distressed by the idols. The Greek word is paroxysm. In other words, he's very, very upset, actually, Why is this? Well, it's undoubtedly because Paul himself is Jewish. And deeply rooted in Paul, therefore, is the story of Israel and his ancestors and their millennia-long devotion to the single, the one, the mono-God, Yahweh, a God who's implacably opposed to idols and to idolatry. His worldview of this one single God is totally at odds with what he views about him. And this word idolatry, I mean, it can come across to modern ears as a very harsh concept, can't it? It's not a phrase or a word that you probably find used in very many settings. Paul wasn't in today's world, however, and the reasons he found idolatry distressing are the reasons we should too when idolatry rears its head in modern forms, Paul knew what the idolatry of the nations that had surrounded Israel in the story of the land and the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, he knew what the idolatry in the surrounding lands looked like. For a start, it was relentlessly cruel. It was demanding of its devotees hideous things like self-mutilation or child sacrifice but fundamentally, perhaps its most dangerous aspect was that it was was a pale imitation of something true and beautiful and good. We were once planning a birthday party for my middle daughter, Isabella, um, which uh, in the party involved making gingerbread man. Uh, And so we uh, went online uh, and ordered 10 rolling pins. Um, When we arrived, um, we got 10 rolling pins, each an inch long. And they were dolls rolling pins, um, which obviously not very good, even for four or five-year-olds to be rolling out pastry. In the biblical story, idolatry sold to the nations surrounding Israel essentially a false or faulty product, not the real thing, a fake hope, a false promise, an imitation of reality. Something useless posing as something useful. Now I use the rolling pin story in part to illustrate the way that God actually reacts to idolatry in ancient prophetic works like Isaiah. Because what we find is often the tactic of mocking is used. Satirizing the idol's. Like Isaiah 46, which talks about God taking his people through the Red Sea, carrying them across the wilderness, and then compares that with the surrounding nations who have to pick up the heavy idol and carry it and set it down. And then talks about God's mighty hand and outstretched arm and says, well, these idols, their arms... They don't even move. They're not even mechanical. They're not even on hinges. And their legs, which could carry you, they don't even have them. They sit on plinths. The contrast is made between the molten metal idols on poles carried from place to place and the power of the true God who carries his people through the wilderness to hold on to this thought about idols, Paul later is going to tell us a joke about it. He argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does the babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. And in brackets, this is Luke speaking, this was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So the city has many religions and many sects represented and amongst them it seems there are Jewish worshippers of the God Paul proclaims. They're, they're part of the scattered people of Israel who had, who, who had found themselves in different locations at this moment in history. So Paul's habit is to go first to the Jewish communities, to the synagogue and engage with the Jews and also the Gentile converts to Judaism. But then he soon found him, finds himself engaging in the marketplace, the Agora, with some of the more philosophical residents of the town, the Stoics and the Epicureans. So this is a really heady mix of worldviews we've got now we have Paul at the center of this very diverse group of thinkers on the one hand you have the ethnic and the non-ethnic Jews who believed in a single knowable a supreme God the one God with a long history of personal relationship with his people but they would have been still waiting for the culmination of the story the arrival of the messiah And on the other hand, you've you've got Epicureans. They emphasize the higher pleasures of life and Stoics who emphasize the rational over the emotions. And both of them, they were pantheistic. So they, they thought God was essentially like a divine ordering principle that was part of the material stuff of the world. But essentially, God was to be found in the world, not above it. And in the midst of them, Paul is an ethnic Jew With the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Moses. He's got that inscribed in him. That's part of who he is. But he has the latest chapter of the tale. He knows about the twist that has recently come to pass. The events of 33 AD. The death of the Messiah. And then on the third day, the new life. And we don't need to delve further into this philosophical mix, really. But what we can say is that Paul's reception was not particularly good. What does this babbler want to say? Maybe you're sitting there thinking that today. What does this babbler want to say? He seems to be preaching foreign divinities. The word babbler sounds comical, but it's actually quite a derogatory insult in the Greek. The phrase foreign divinities, it's actually got a sense of menace about it. We don't have to go into this, but earlier, very famously in Athens, Socrates had been put to death for preaching new divinities and new philosophies. So it's got a bit of a menace about it. And then um, Luke adds this little comment. He says this was because Paul was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection and They'd never heard of Jesus, and the idea of resurrection actually is not a very Greek idea at all. So this would all have been very new. Was it a little bit menacing? It's a bit hard to know from the text. And the text goes on to say they took him, and they brought him to the Aeropagus. And they asked him, that sounds quite polite. May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, but we'd like to know what it all means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Again, that last bit is Luke speaking. So it's not clear how much trouble Paul is in here. You know, they took him, that sounds like he's arrested, but actually it is quite a, in the Greek, quite a gentle phrase, and the Oropagus, Mars Hill is how that translates, the hill of Ares, that, that, that's not a court, it's not a prison, it's, it's a debating chamber essentially, or a group of people you debate with. And it, it turns out that the Stoics and the Epicureans and the assorted Athenian thinkers, that they can't quite make up their minds about Paul. Um, they're, they're suspicious and, and they're a bit accusatory, but also... Luke whispers this to us, I guess. That they just love new stuff. They love new stuff. There is nothing more that they like than telling or hearing something new. Life, it seems, in the ancient and the modern marketplace is a constant quest for the new. Here, only the innovative, the fresh, the novel will do. The point is not to settle somewhere. The point is not to find the answer. Don't narrow your options down to a single solution. Keep searching. Keep moving on. Don't decide. Don't commit. Don't tie yourself down. What else could be around the corner? What novel experience awaits you if you make yourself available to the next wave, the next trend, the next person to roll into town with something enticing and exciting? The Athenian thirst for the new is really just the modern world, the Facebook maybe button transposed into a different key. And I think we're all infected to some extent with the newness bug. This is a passage from uh, the author Alan Noble. He observes of modern life. Some eat, some drink, some work more some work out more some binge watch friends some immerse themselves in the news some immerse themselves in porn some play video games some shop some sleep Some become K-pop fans, some scroll endlessly through Instagram, some post endlessly on Twitter, some argue online, some obsess about their health, some obsess about the environment, some protest online, some protest to be famous online, some travel, some attempt self-improvement, some join extremist movements, some join multi-level marketing programs, some take up yoga, some take up gambling, some participate in extreme sports, some participate in illicit romance, some invest in self-care, some invest in bitcoins, some discover a new identity, Some modify their body. Some modify their diets. Some embrace causes. Some embrace mocking causes. And it's possible to find yourself as an Athenian in this place with God. Continually exploring and seeking out the new, not as the start of a journey which eventually ends with discovery, not with the purpose of finding but with the purpose of seeking and searching and exploring as a destination itself. And indeed, Christianity offers newness, all right. Don't get me wrong. Newness in abundance, new birth, new life. But it's a new birth into what him, one hymn writer describes as solid joys and lasting pleasures. And Paul himself senses this. He sees the unsatisfying and unfulfilled self-medication that idol worship brings, that dotting from one thing to the next brings. He sees the options open, multi-idol, multi-god supermarket of Athens, the York of its day, and he has something to say. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And let's pause before we get to the this, because what Paul has done here shows us something very important. He's observed, he has noticed, he has not written off the culture, he has not um, ignored it. He's been through the city, he's carefully inspected the idols which distressed him, and he's found one which above all gets to the heart of the broken view of God the Athenians hold. For there, options open, multi-idol, multi-god, choose-your-own-adventure supermarket of Athens, the York of its day, remember, even has a hedge-your-bets option. The idol to the gods who we may not even have thought of. We might have missed. We might have overlooked. Pointing this out is, in a sense, meant to be a bit of a, a joke. This is kind of an element of sarcasm here that's deployed to sort of burst the bubble especially that word religious which is sort of has two meanings religious and superstitious but the statue of the unknown god is is also making paul's point very effectively it shows that there is a niggling doubt at the center of this culture that even if you've tried every new thing under the sun even if you've maxed out on the options and the choices and the alternatives. Even then, the altar to the unknown God is necessary. As humans, perhaps, we are haunted by the possibility of what might be unknown. But how about if there were a known God? What if one day, through the forest or fog of unknown gods of Partially known gods are promising at first, but ultimately disappointing gods. How about while stumbling through the supermarket of possible saviors, you stumble upon the real thing? Paul declares, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who was Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he has made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live. So that they would search for God and and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, We too are his children. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image. Formed by the art or the imagination of mortals. Oh, God has overlooked the times of ignorance, but, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He's fixed a day on which He will have the world judged in righteousness by a man He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Paul has a known God to proclaim and ever since from then to date in this church in thousands of others around this land in millions of other churches through the globe and through history you will find the same proclamation not that some humans have found their way to God but that God has found his way to humanity he has made himself known He has been proclaimed as the known God. The action is all his. He has revealed himself to be the creator of heaven and earth, the the source, the originator. He has revealed himself to be the creator of all humans. And we're not just his followers. We're not just believers or adherents or attendees. We're his children. One single, unified, dignified, image-bearing people dispersed across the world in many nations, directly countering Greek claims of ethnic exclusivity with a statement about the human race having dignity and image-bearing of God being one in its origins. He has no need of a shrine, nor any need to be served by human hands as if he needed anything. No, it is us who need him for life and breath and all things. And he's not formed or contained by the art or imagination of mortals. You think you can imagine something that is as good as this God. His hugeness, his vast incomprehensibility bursts out of any packaging we may wrap him in. And let us reflect for a moment on one further glorious truth about this God, which is that we belong to him. Paul knew how to relate to and communicate to the the audience he had in front of him, so he uses a philosopher, Epimenides of Crete, to make his point. In him we live and move and have our being. This world, perhaps especially our modern Western world, it's heavily laden with the, the burden and the responsibility of self-belonging. That life's meaning has to be sought and found in life's accomplishments. That you, who you are, what you represent, you know, what it is to be Beth Roderick or Bex Taylor, that's the sum of what you build, the achievements that you curate, the you that is you belongs to no one else and, and thus it can only ever consist of the highlights or otherwise of your CV, the balanced personality or otherwise you have arrived at, the niche you've carved out at work, the relationships you cultivate, the friendships that you manage to gain, the options and the positions you hold, the signals that you send out on social media of your interesting and diverting taste in cookery, music, films, books or whatever. Whatever it looks like, this version of personhood starts by assuming that humans belong to themselves and that they only have themselves to credit or to blame for who they are. And this almost inevitably turns out to be a crushing weight, an unmanageable level of expectation, an unbearable burden of self-belonging. But the gospel of Jesus turns this on its head. You don't belong to yourself. In him you live and move and have your being. He is the ground of who you are. Belonging to him is the truest type of freedom. Free to be ground in one who is other than you. To find your meaning and the answers to the deepest questions in the one who gives life and breath to all humankind. You're not your own. And this is probably the most freeing news you will ever hear. Do you see why Paul was so distressed at the little idol statues that were dotted about the city? You see, the Athenians worshipped gods who lived and moved and had their being in humans. They had to be carved and carried and set up on columns. But How dare anyone suggest that we, with human hands, set up the contexts and the shrines and the locations for this God to operate? He has far better plans for us and for the cosmos than that would allow. He roams the heavens and earths freely. He roars through the universe at a whim, bestowing grace and mercy like deep rivers. His hands shape and mold us into his glorious beauty. He raises up the poor and the oppressed from the ashes. He brings down the mighty. His life courses through our veins. His peace quiets our souls. His love burns deeply in our hearts. His blood makes atonement for our sins. His resurrection life bursts through in scandalous and surprising ways. Why on earth would you want to be your own? Why would you, earth, want to belong to anyone apart from that God, that marvelous and wonderful Father of heaven? You belong to him. Did anyone make you? There's a God in heaven who loves you so deeply. He formed every cell and atom of your body and knitted you together. Does anyone own you? God in heaven, you belong to him. You are his. He defines who you are. Does anyone know you? There's a God who intimately knows you, who is aware of all your failings and your weaknesses and all the goodness and life and gift he has put within you. And he loves you intimately. There is a beautiful summary of these truths which we're going to end on today. It's from something called the Heidelberg Catechism. That's, uh, it's basically a series of 52 questions and answers, one for every Sunday of the year. And so as we finish, as we draw to the communion table, um, I'd like us to say this before we come to Jesus, before we come to the bread and the wine. So, I'd love you to stand if you would. And it starts off with a very simple question from me, and then your response over a, a few slides. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong. Body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, All things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Let's come to the table together.